Right, good morning church, lovely to see everybody. Uh, obviously we're dwindling at this time of year with people away on holiday, but so that means there's a double blessing for the rest of us. Uh, please have, have your Bibles open, also have the white bulletin open, because you'll see there the outline of where we're going. And uh, let's ask for God's help as we come to this passage. Heavenly Father, we remember from the Gospels that when the Apostle Peter wanted to walk on the water, uh, when he took his eyes off Jesus, he began to sink. And Lord, this is a time of year when we are conscious of the wind and the waves, of broken relationships, uh, difficult situations, um, broken families, uh, death and so on. Lord, please speak to us this morning, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, that we too may not begin to sink like Peter. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, confidence is uh, a rather strange thing, isn't it? Um, you, you need confidence when you go for a job interview, uh, or when you, you're going to give a presentation at work, or when you uh, step onto the first tee at Westlake Golf Club. Um, confidence is an important factor in achieving all your goals and objectives in life. It's actually essential. But you can have too much of it. Uh, overconfidence can lead to arrogance, which then leads to, to carelessness, and ultimately, of course, to not achieving your goals. So confidence is one of those things where there's got to be a balance. Uh, and one of the things that dictates the balance is whether or not the thing you're putting your confidence in has got any real substance. Uh, if you are a Springbok supporter, then uh, before the HSBC Rugby Sevens last weekend, you might have been feeling confident. Uh, but of course the result revealed that your confidence was misplaced. And of course there are lots and lots of situations in life just like that. Now Sardis had a reputation for being a confident city. Uh, it was at the junction of five major roads in Asia Minor, or what we call modern Turkey. And those roads, of course, brought a steady stream of trade and traffic into the city. So it was a wealthy city, it was also a secure city. Uh, the people who built it boasted that it could never be conquered because it was situated on top of a mountain, um, surrounded by vertical cliffs, with only one point of access, so it was quite easy to defend it. And so there was every reason for the people of Sardis to feel confident and secure. But it seems as if Sardis suffered from overconfidence because there were two occasions when the city had fallen. And on both occasions the city fell because the people were overconfident. So in the year 549 BC the city was taken by Cyrus, king of Persia, and then 200 years later it was taken by Alexander the Great. And on both occasions... The enemy came at night by climbing up the vertical cliffs. There were no guards on duty because everybody 
thought Sardis was secure. So the city fell. In one sense, it was a chance in a thousand, but it happened twice. Sardis was too confident, uh, too secure, too smug. More recently, there'd been a devastating earthquake in the area, which we can date to the year AD 17. And we know that the Romans invested quite a lot of money uh, to rebuild Sardis. In fact, the, the emperor Tiberius committed himself to restoring it to its former glory. So when John wrote the book of Revelation, it looked as if Sardis was all set for a new chapter of success and prosperity, but history confirms that never really happened. Sardis promised much, but in the end it produced very little. And at the time this letter was written, it was living off its past reputation. And so was the church. Now we often say that uh, you can't judge by appearances, although of course we do that all the time. But uh, isn't it refreshing that the Lord Jesus does not judge by appearances? No, he judges by what he knows. So look at verse 1 with me. It says, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, if you remember, in an earlier study, we saw that the seven stars probably refers to the pastors or the ministers of these seven churches. Jesus says he's holding on to them. I find that very reassuring. Because pastors can make mistakes. Uh, That was true then and of course it's still true today. But you see, Jesus holds us in his hand. He's in control. And that means there's absolutely no possibility that his plans and purposes can be derailed. And the seven spirits of God, or if you notice the footnote in your Bible, uh, it says the sevenfold spirit. That's a way of talking about the Holy Spirit. Uh, In the Bible, as you know, the number seven is the number of perfection or completeness. So the sevenfold spirit is the Holy Spirit in the absolute perfection of his knowledge and in the absolute perfection of his life-giving power. And I say that because whenever you come across the Holy Spirit in the Bible, he is the life-giver. He's the one who brings us to faith in Christ at our conversion. And he's also the one who who lives inside every Christian, making us more like Jesus. So you see, what Jesus is saying in verse 1 is, I am the one who knows everything about your situation. And I'm also the one who holds the life-giving power that has made you Christian people and that's able to bring you to maturity as you trust in me. So, this is a word from Jesus. He knows the true spiritual condition of all his churches, and in this particular letter he exposes what's wrong in Sardis and what the church needs to do about it. 
Now, although you and I are not living in Sardis, what Jesus was saying to them then also speaks to us this morning. And we know that because of what Jesus says in verse 6. Just put your nose on verse 6, remind yourself of it. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, that is, is saying now, to the churches, plural. So the Spirit is addressing all of God's churches in every age. That includes us. Notice first then, (coughs) excuse me, notice first then the diagnosis that Jesus gives. The diagnosis. Sardis had a positive reputation. End of verse 1. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive. Sounds marvellous. But then we can read on. But you are dead. Now what we need to remember, you see, is that Jesus sees the reality behind the facade. Everybody in Sardis and the surrounding area was saying, what a marvellous, lively, active church. But the reality is, Jesus can't find anything to praise them for because they're dead. I find it rather interesting, uh, after the last two letters we've looked at, that um, he says they're dead as a general comment at the end of verse 1. But then in verse 2 he says, strengthen what is about to die. So it seems they're not totally dead, but clearly death is, is taking over the church, isn't it? There's no shortage of activity, and that's why it had a good name, But you see, it's possible, isn't it, to be a busy church with lots of projects, lots of ministries, plenty of things going on, and yet for the spiritual life to be ebbing away without people really noticing. So the Lord of the church has to say to this congregation, you are about to die. Now, I don't doubt for one moment that they were still holding their meetings, they were singing their hymns, they were praying, they were listening to the sermons, tithing, serving on all the different committees. It all looked very impressive on the outside. And a casual observer would have said, what a marvellously active congregation. But Jesus says, you're about to die. Some parts of the church are already dead, Now, why does he say that? Why does he say that? Well, look with me again at verse 2. He says, Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. So the problem is incomplete deeds. Lots of things have been started. In the sight of uh, the people around, it all looks fine, but Christ's perspective is different because everything's been left half-finished and they're living off a past reputation. It's interesting, isn't it, that there's no mention of the idolatry or the sexual immorality that was such a huge problem at Pergamum and Thyatira But instead, what Jesus does is he puts his finger on what is not being done. 
Nothing is being carried through to completion. I know your deeds, but they're incomplete. What kind of deeds is he thinking of? Uh, Well, remember, Scripture interprets Scripture. So glance back up to chapter 2, verse 19. Uh, because we got a list of deeds, didn't we, in Thyatira, a list of deeds that pleased the Lord Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus said, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance. But, But now this week he says to the church at Sardis, none of those things are developing in you. Nothing is being carried through to completion. You become complacent, sleepy. So so where love is concerned, that there's no pressing on to a deeper love for Christ. There's no desire to show Christ how much I love him by my obedience to his word or by my commitment to his mission. There's no growing faith there. There's no sacrificial service. I mean, the church is still operating, don't misunderstand that. But it's become mechanical. And of course, churches can be like that, can't they? They can continue for many years, you know, running their programs, holding their services, having their socials, paying their bills, but it's all external. And Jesus says the life's gone can happen to any church. And what they need to do, you see, is to recognise that the life comes from Christ and from his life-giving spirit. But at Sardis, you see, it seems that their confidence is in their reputation and their structures, their rotors. But you see, they don't have what we might call an urgent confidence in the power of Christ and the Spirit to breathe his life into all the programmes and activities. Because, you see, that's what makes a church come truly alive. You can't have a live church without that. So I think if this was today, we would say that the church at Sardis was evangelical but nominal. There were lots of people who were coasting. They were perfectly happy to be there on Sunday morning. But there was nothing going on to satisfy the Lord of the church. And all their deeds were rather like an empty shell with no living body inside it. And what looked so very solid on the outside, Jesus says, in fact, it's wafer thin. It's wafer thin. It was successful. It was popular. It was busy. But dead. And complacent about it. Now you might say, well, can that ever happen to a real church? And uh, there's one helpful cross-reference today that I think will help us see that it can. It's in the very last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote before he was martyred. Keep a finger in Revelation and turn with me to 2 Timothy 3 on page 845. 
2 Timothy, chapter 3, page 845. Now, obviously, Paul is writing to Timothy, who at this stage is running the church at Ephesus. Now, that, of course, was the first letter we looked at, wasn't it? And uh, in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says this. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. In case you don't know, the last days is the period between the ascension of the Lord Jesus and his return. It's sometimes called the church age. So it's now. Verse 2, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. And then there's a long list that we're not going to read of the very unpleasant characteristics uh, of people who love themselves and love money. And uh, now come to the end of verse 4. End of verse 4, Paul says that these people are lovers of pleasure, notice the contrast, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now that was true in the first century, and I don't need to tell you that it's just as true in the 21st century, isn't it? We see it in the culture all around us. But verse 5 is the shock. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. So you see, Paul is warning Timothy that there are going to be churches like that. They will have the appearance of godliness. On the outside, it's going to look absolutely splendid. But in the lives of the people in those churches, loving self, loving money, loving pleasure has taken over from loving God. And when that happens... Um, although it might seem to be a gospel church, the lives of the members of the church deny the power of the gospel. That's what Paul's saying. Uh, They turn their back on the power of God, the Holy Spirit, to transform our lives so that we make love for God the main focus. And uh, they drift back into loving themselves loving their money and loving their pleasure. And although they have a form of godliness, their lives deny the reality of godliness. Well, come back to Revelation because, you see, that is exactly Sardis, isn't it? Those things are there in the church. In verse 4, notice this, they are described in terms of their clothes being soiled. Can you see that phrase? So there's compromise with sin in various ways. But the shock is that the outward appearance is hiding a lack of power beneath the surface. Because they've said no to the only power in the universe that can conquer the world, the flesh and the devil. And wherever those characteristics that Paul describes to Timothy are seen in our own lives, there is a sleeping sickness 
that will eventually end in death. So that is the diagnosis. What's to be done? Well, notice secondly then, the treatment. Verse 2, verse 2 again. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. And then verse 3. Remember therefore what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. Now you've got five urgent commands in those two verses. Notice this. Wake up, strengthen, remember, obey, repent. That's the treatment. Now of course Jesus, you see, is able to heal the dying and raise the dead, isn't he? I mean, we, saw, we see that in the Gospels, don't we? You know, um, it's what he did in his earthly ministry. And what Jesus did physically is a sign to us of what he can do spiritually. I mean, if he can raise Jairus' daughter, if he can raise the widow's son, if he can raise Lazarus after Lazarus has already been in the tomb for several days, well then he can raise dead churches. And as Jesus raised those people physically with a word, so he does here. He says, wake up. You see, the city of Sardis fell because the people who should have been on guard, being alert and active, became complacent and fell asleep. So the first step on the road to recovery is to wake up to the danger Now you see, that says to us that if our Christian lives this morning have somehow drifted into a kind of formality, if they've gone into a kind of rut and there's no vigour, there's no real desire to grow, no real enthusiasm for our Christian discipleship, well, this could be a word to us, wouldn't it? We all need to examine ourselves on this, you see. Particularly at Christmas. Christmas is a very good time to do it, actually. Does Jesus look at our deeds and find them incomplete? You know, that sinful attitude we we ought to be grappling with in the power of the Holy Spirit, but we've decided to leave it and let it go because we've convinced ourselves it doesn't matter too much. That pattern of behaviour that we know isn't really honouring to Christ, but again, we we don't want to confront it, particularly not at Christmas. Now, those are signs we've gone to sleep. So, so the strength of the Spirit, the, the perfect strength of the sevenfold Spirit is not active in our lives. We're not depending on it. And so the proof of that is the work of struggling against sin and growing in godliness and being effective Christians is incomplete. We've settled down. We've become complacent. We've all done it. And can I say that the opposite of growing in the Christian life is declining. And death, necrosis, begins to set in. 
And so Jesus says, wake up and strengthen what remains. That means cultivate your inner life with God before it starts to evaporate and disappear. Don't be content with simply going through the motions of what you think a Christian disciple ought to be doing. No, actively develop your love for God and your love for his people. Strengthen your faith through daily Bible reading and prayer. Persevere in your Christian service. Otherwise, you see, your deeds will be incomplete in the sight of God. Now, of course, we're never going to be perfectly complete until we see the Lord Jesus face to face. But the point is, we are to be people who are pressing on in these areas. Thirdly, he says, remember. Remember what you have received and heard. In other words, remember the the gospel of God's free grace in Christ. Go back to basics, he says. Go back to the person of the Lord Jesus himself, back to the cross where he died for my sins, back to the empty tomb and the risen Saviour, because he's overcome all the hostile powers and he is able to empower us through the gift of his Spirit. As a friend of ours is fond of saying, remember, won't you, that the gospel is not only the way into the Christian life, it's also the way on in the Christian life. So you get in by the gospel, but the way on is also by the gospel. You never move on from the gospel by trusting Christ crucified, by drawing on the resources of the risen Jesus, as his spirit empowers us. And remember. Now when somebody remembers in the Bible, it's not just a mental exercise. Because in the Bible, remembering always leads to action. It's true in life, isn't it? Uh, If you remember that uh, your friend has a birthday coming up, then as the day draws draws closer, you, you do something about it. Uh, you decide how you're going to celebrate and what you're going to give them. But if the day actually comes and you've done nothing about it, and the person says, well, didn't you remember it was my birthday? And you say, oh yes, well, I I remembered it a couple of weeks ago, but, but I haven't actually done anything about it. Well, that's hopeless, isn't it? See, that's not remembering at all. Christian remembering acts on what it knows. And so here you see when Jesus says remember, he's not saying, um, you know, do some mental gymnastics to go back to your Christian beginnings. He's not saying that. He's saying go back to them and act on them. Make sure you are an active Christian in terms of your relationship with Christ and his word. And obey it. That's the fourth command, isn't it? Live it out. Make his priorities your priorities. 
priorities of, of love and faith and service and perseverance. And for all of us, that will mean repenting. That's the fifth command in the list, isn't it? Repenting is a change of mind that leads to a change of behaviour. It's an act of will by which I seek to live differently by committing my life to Christ and to the power of his spirit to enable me to live for Jesus in the way that he has called me to. Now friends, these commands are very simple, aren't they? There's nothing complex about any of this. But they are a very important checklist. And and I think you could summarise it by saying it's actually a picture of the Christian life. Wake up, strengthen, remember, obey, repent. Every day at the cross, every day depending on Christ's forgiveness, every day meeting the challenges by the power of his spirit. It's basic Christianity. But the church at Sardis had moved away from it. And so do we, whenever we become complacent or lazy or start living off our past reputation. So please notice verse 3. Jesus says, but if you don't wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Literally, that last phrase means, I will come against you. You see, the point is the doctor can prescribe the treatment, but we've got to take the medicine. And the alternative, according to Jesus, is disaster. It's sudden, it's like a thief, or it's like those soldiers who climbed up the vertical cliffs when the people weren't expecting it. And I think it's rather brilliant the way that Jesus tells this, sends this letter on the basis of the people's history, because they recognise all these illustrations. And he does that to move them to action. Because he says, if you do nothing, I will come against you. That is not something any of us want. Terrible thing to have to face the judgment of Christ because we fail to use the resources that he's given to us. But I also want to suggest that there's an application here for us as a church together Because we're living in a generation when large numbers of people in the West have kind of written off the Bible as irrelevant and out of date. Now, if we are to be a faithful church, we have to stand up for God's truth. We have a responsibility before God to know what we believe and why we believe it. And that's why we're doing one-to-one next year and a course called Christian Basics. We need to know God's priorities and we need to be able to explain them. We need to be ready to explain Bible basics to our families, 
to our friends, to our colleagues at work. And if we're not, if we say, well, I couldn't possibly do that. I mean, I'm I'm already busy enough. I couldn't possibly take on something as challenging as, as that and I'd probably be pretty bad at it anyway. Jesus would say to us, I have not found your deeds complete. Now, of course, we need wisdom to know how to do it. We need to pray for grace and sensitivity to do it well. But we do need to do it. No excuses. And for those who do, the letter ends on a really positive note. Because Jesus lays out the prospects before his faithful people. What are they? I mean, if we do wake up, if we do re-establish God's priorities in our own lives, both individually and as a church, if we take the treatment, what can we expect the outcome to be? Verse 4. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. That's a very encouraging verse, isn't it? Um, There is still apparently a a spiritually healthy group in Sardis. Not many of them, just a few. But their names are known to Jesus personally. They haven't compromised with sin. Uh, They're not complacent. They haven't gone to sleep. They are distinctively different in their lifestyle. And that is shown by the fact that they haven't allowed their garments to be soiled. Uh, That's just a way of saying that they haven't simply blended into the unbelieving surrounding culture. And you see, if you and I have a sincere desire, a sincere desire to be like Christ, that is a desire that Christ will always honour. He'll bring it to completion. So that's a great promise in verse 4. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The white clothing obviously symbolises holiness, but their worthiness to, to share that intimacy with Jesus is not because of their own strength, but down to the fact that they've put all their trust in Christ. You see, we have to read the book as a whole. Uh, Later in the book, the the white clothing of God's people are clothes that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. It's kind of a strange metaphor, isn't it? But it's saying that the only way to be made fit to be with God in his kingdom is to be trusting in the death of Jesus and what he did when he shed his blood on the cross. Nobody nobody is going to be worthy to walk with Jesus in eternity based on their own performance. Because we've all soiled our garments. But if we trust in the death of Jesus, then our garments are washed white in the blood of the Lamb. That's a huge encouragement, isn't it? Because you see, if I'm trusting in Jesus, this can be me. What it means is that no past failure, no past compromise, 
no past relying on an empty reputation, none of those things in the past will deprive me of the precious gift of eternal fellowship with Jesus in the kingdom. Now this is not an impossible ideal. You know, however much we might have been coasting along, however much we might have been drifting with the tide, however much our garments might be soiled, if you are trusting in Christ, you can be certain that your name is written in the book of life in indelible ink. Do you see that promise in verse 5? Just have a look at it. Verse 5. Jesus says, I will never blot out his name from the book of life. Never. And on the day that God opens the books, that is the one book that's going to matter. Those who were faithful to Christ in Sardis might well have found that their names were blotted out of the city register because we don't want keen Christians here, thank you very much but they will never find their names blotted out of the book of life. And that guarantees entrance into the heavenly kingdom. And if that is where your name is, well, you will walk with Jesus in white garments. I wonder whether Gillian and Alita knew what I was going to say before they came to church this morning. But the important question, you see, is... Is this who I am? Am I actively trusting him? Am I growing in my Christian discipleship? Am I truly making God's priorities my priorities? Because it's not about whether my name is on a baptism certificate or about whether my name is on the register of members in the local church. It's about whether my name is written in the book of life. And Jesus writes those names for everybody who trusts in the blood of the Lamb. And for those people, Jesus says, I will acknowledge them before my Father and before his angels. So here's the question. Where is your confidence this morning? Where is our confidence as a church? You know, if we have a reputation, I don't know whether we do or not, but if we do, we mustn't put our trust in that. Because if we do, we'll take our eyes off Jesus, we'll start to rely on ourselves, and the result will be Sardis, you see. It's not about what we do. It's all about what Christ has done for us. But what he longs to see in your daily life and in my daily life is that we are pressing on to complete our deeds in God's sight. That means not living a double life, not easing off over Christmas, not being one thing on Saturday night and another thing on Sunday morning. The question is, is there a consistency and completeness in our devotion to Jesus Christ as Lord? Or are we just jogging along? 
allowing ourselves to be kind of carried along by the church's reputation. See, in the last analysis, can I say it doesn't actually matter what our reputation is. It doesn't matter what people say about us, either individually or as a church. It could be flattering, or it could be critical. It doesn't really matter. What matters is the Lord's assessment of us as he looks into our hearts and sees our relationship with him. I know your deeds, he says. So wake up, strengthen, begin again to trust my word. What a great thing to do as we come to the start of a new year. Remember it, obey it, and repent. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for this glorious prospect of walking with you in eternity, in intimacy and personal relationship because you have washed our clothes white in the precious blood of Jesus. And we thank you for this wonderful promise that you will never blot out our name from the book of life when we put our trust in Jesus. So Lord, if we've become sleepy, wake us up. Where we need to remember, bring back to our minds the basics of the gospel. Help us to obey your word and to repent of those things that have compromised our loyalty to you. Lord, wake us up and strengthen us. May we always depend totally on you and the spiritual life that comes only through your sevenfold spirit so that we might live lives that honour and glorify you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.